0: well welcome back to the podcast everybody uh this is your boy dr mark list uh here at the primary care podcast uh, today we are talking uh, about coronavirus uh, covid19 uh, skin findings uh, but before we do that we want to hit up at the uh, primary gmail.com inbox uh, with questions and concerns and uh today's actually uh we're gonna do a little bit of it more of an interesting intro um uh, because instead of a joke, which, uh, again, nobody sends me jokes. I don't read jokes. Nobody, nobody supports the podcast by, uh, by giving me uh, uh, sponsorship money. I, I guess we're going to do something different. Um, so today's, uh, today's podcast introduction actually came from a friend of mine who said, uh, please, please read this article and put this on your podcast. <clears throat> so the article is Bee Venom and SARS-CoV-2, okay, uh, COVID-19. Uh, this is from Wee Yang and Zhao Fangzhu in the Journal of Toxicon. Uh, this is a letter to the editor in uh, July 15th of 2020. So get in your time machines, uh, boys, girls, podcast people. We're going to the future. Uh, why I'm laughing is because it's about bee venom. Okay, so this is from a physician in China, and uh, he says there is one discovery we would like to report here. It reminds us to, of the story of cowpox and the eventual victory of human of humans over this disease. Now, um, uh, back backstory, right? Uh, cowpox uh, is a less dangerous uh, cousin to smallpox. Was used as one of the first vaccinations to. Give people a milder form of a disease that is cowpox to give them immunity over smallpox. Uh, so that's the background, right? In case nobody knows their microbiological history, I'm sure you guys remember that from medical school, uh, where s- uh, cowpox could be used to give immunity over smallpox, which is much more dangerous. So you give them something less dangerous. Okay, backstory. Okay, so uh, in the Hubei province uh, in Wuhan, this physician, uh, this team of physicians, right, they went and they surveyed. 5,115 beekeepers, and they interviewed them from February to March. So this is after the outbreak, okay? And uh, including 723 living within the city limits in Wuhan. Again, a, 15 million, uh, a city of 15 million people. Um, none of these 5,115 beekeepers had any symptoms of COVID-19. Okay, which is pretty remarkable given how widespread coronavirus is and how much the Chinese suppressed the real numbers, which people think it was most of the city that probably got it, not the 60,000 reported cases. And they interviewed five api therapists. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right. AP therapists, api therapists. Uh, those are, uh, uh, are alternative medicine physicians that use bee venom and use them, use bee venom to treat diseases, quote, treat diseases, unquote. So they talked to all these therapists and they talked to all their patients, uh, and these were all patients that were seen in these clinics from October to December, and they tracked down all these people, and none of the 121 patients who were treated with bee venom for any, any use whatsoever had any symptoms, and including people who had family members that were positive coronavirus, and, uh, and including the practitioners themselves who also inject themselves because what's good for the goose is good for the gander, I guess. So uh, there are a total, right, a total of 5,100, the N is 5,100, and they report, in this case report, zero people with symptoms. So what I'm saying is we found the cure, people. We found the cure. Get Doctor Fauci on the line. We got bee venom here. It is. We we all wondered what bees' purpose was. You know, forget flowers, forget pollinating the world and keeping nature safe. Bees were here to save us from coronavirus. Now, Bob, Bob, Bob is skeptical. I can see him over there. He's he's skeptical hippo, skeptical. Um, but what do bee stings actually do? What's the mechanism? What's the proposed mechanism? Well. Well, what do bee stings do? Bee stings cause allergic reactions, right? They activate the immune system, the body's innate immune system, which is what we know goes crazy in some cases of COVID, where that, you know, COVID comes in and basically causes a cytokine storm. And and that's why we think that children don't have as much problems with coronavirus because their innate immunity is so strong and so hypervigilant. Um, and yet older older. People above the age of eighty have a very weak innate immune system. Have a strong antibody-mediated antibody in, in, and in, uh, antibody-mediated immune system. I'm leaving it in there. Breaking. I'm, I'm popping the ego with all these. I'm leaving that in there. So, what what we know happens in bee stings? It enhances differentiation of human regulatory T cells, which T cells are. One of the you know major things that we're talking about in terms of lymphocytes and and improving the innate immune system and uh, Medcram on YouTube has a lot of stuff about how to increase your own body's innate immune system. He thinks heat and cold changes in temperature will do this, and so he's he's proposing that as a mechanism. But this guy from China inject everybody with bee venom, let the bees go wild, uh, put all of our children in a school, and release the bees. This is the cure. You can send all of our kids back to school. We'll just release bees into nursing homes and prisons and meatpacking plants, and they go sting crazy, and and we're cured. Everybody goes back to work. Reopen America, Doctor Fauci. Let's do it. Let's do it, Bob. We're doing the podcast. Let's do this. Primary Podcast is written physicians, practitioners, and primary. This is not a podcast for Should not be used as medical bugs. This is also a personal podcast. It's produced I my own time, so you're playing with personal opinions. Things that this podcast do not reflect the views, policies, my employer, past or present, or any other organization with which I may be affiliated. Thank you for listening to the Primary Care Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark List, here to bring you the latest news, guidelines, and updates from primary care sources around the globe. Keeping it under fifteen minutes long because you're in a hurry and I'm not that smart. Welcome back to the podcast, Pod people, Pod girls pod boys, pod general neutral pro pronouns, my, my people in in Denmark, my people in the United Kingdom, listeners, it's, it's your quarantine companion, Captain Quarantine, your best friend, Dr. Mark List, your podcast host for the pod, primary care podcast. Welcome back to the pod. Uh, that was a longer than normal intro. I just, I, I read that study my, my friend sent me and I laughed hysterically for a while and I, I, I was just like, this is it. I, I have to have it on the podcast. I, um. So anyways, uh, thanks for bearing with me here. Uh, today we're going to talk about skin findings in coronavirus. Um, obviously, we, we've we talked a lot in the last month or two about coronavirus. Uh, it's really uh, the main topic of education right now. It's pretty much dominating people's lives. I'm trying to throw in some other ones, but we have not talked about skin findings for coronavirus. And I think it's a big topic, especially for primary care. You know, when we have people who have, gosh, a multitude of symptoms who are potential at-risk people. And, you know, we have a high rate of false negative tests. So as we continue to see this grow, what other things should we be looking for? You know, the CDC added things like lost taste, loss of smell. That was a big one. Uh, people are having a lot more um, gastrointestinal symptoms. Uh, again, that's I shouldn't say a lot more, a, a minor amount. You know, there's still a lot of a lot of details with that. But some of the other things that can be a really common early sign in up to 20% of patients were seeing rashes in COVID-19 patients. Now, we know that in pediatric patients, for example, most of them have very minimal symptoms or very low likelihood of having severe symptoms, and yet many of them have nonspecific viral exanthems, urticaria, and even chillblains, uh, pernio. You know, we talk about these pernio like lesions, the acroischemic lesions, which we know is related to the vascular problems associated with coronavirus. So we've seen on average, uh, the studies say on average about three digits, not always toes and fingers, but usually toes more than fingers, can be both at the same time, can be bilateral, but usually unilateral. Normally what they're seeing is rounded, few millimeters in size, Uh, multiple sometimes, can be the entire lesions or the entire finger with clear demarcated lesions. But normally a reddish purple lump, maybe a bluish color lump sometimes bolus, uh, but more than often not tender little pernio like lesions of the digits incredibly common now they're usually very painful and evolve within 2 weeks uh, so i think that's i think that's a, a, again a, a major uh, we don't see chilblains or pernio like lesions of the digits very much so if you see one of these if somebody complains of one of these you basically have to assume oh you actually have coronavirus. And that's what dermatologists are finding around the country in these case reports are high rates of perneal-like lesions being positive as a potential early sign of minimally symptomatic kids or adults with COVID. Um, Other things. Gosh, it can cause just about anything. Non-specific viral exanthems that we see in kids, because guess what? Kids with viral illnesses get rashes. We've seen kids that actually develop Kawasaki's-like rashes as well, uh, even including uh, bilateral conjunctivitis and classic Kawasaki's presentation. Uh, we've uh, palmar rashes or, or erythema of the skin that also causes uh, palmar lesions as well. Um, we've seen more commonly. A levito, a net-like appearance of the skin, almost that kind of like mottly, reticular, lacy kind of pattern, that levito pattern, has been seen really commonly in patients with coronavirus as well. Um, a high percentage of the rashes reported with coronavirus. And again, 20% of COVID patients have a rash of some kind. So I think that's a pretty high pretty high finding. That uh, levidoid uh, pattern, sometimes, again, it can be associated with a cutaneous vasculitis because we know that the coronavirus is affecting a lot of the vasculature, uh, causing little strokes, uh, causing um, issues with with all kind of blood vessel issues, given where the ACE2 receptors are. Uh, Digit ischemia, not just perineal-like lesions, and actual Chilblains, but actual digit ischemia has been possible, especially with antiphospholipid antibodies being positive in the bloodstream. Uh, we've seen uh, urticarial rashes, hives, break out from patients with coronavirus as well. So again, a new onset of a rash, in addition to all the other things that we think about in terms of r- regular viral illnesses, and you know we think about allergies this time of year, causing rashes, uh, Always keep in mind, especially those atypical rashes or atypical patterns, especially in patients with any symptoms whatsoever or exposures to patients, other patients with coronavirus, uh, certainly keep all new rashes in your head. Um, Another really common thing that they've been seeing more in hospitals is petechia. uh, As the coronavirus drops uh, blood counts in general and causes immuno or bone marrow suppression, As platelet counts drop, we see more petechial lesions. So petechial hemorrhages, uh, petechial rashes, very common as you get thrombocytopenic. And that's pretty much what they've been finding. Uh, So coronavirus not only affects the lungs, affects uh, the sense of smell and taste, but certainly affects the uh, blood vessels and skin as well. So today we're going to wrap up uh, this episode of the Primary Care Podcast. Thanks again for tuning in, everybody. Uh, this has been Dr. Mark. let reminding you, you don't need to stay up all night and stay up to date. Uh, thanks for tuning in and listening. Hey, have a great rest of your week, everybody, and uh, stay safe. God bless you. Bob, take us out.